Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. From Suite 2180 in the North Towers of Planet Hollywood Hotel in Las Vegas, Nevada, overlooking the magnificent Bellagio Fountains. This is Obscure Season 3, Wuthering Heights. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist, Michael Ian Black, Southern Esquire, coming at ya from Sin City, where I am participating in a... Uh, uh, a television program starring the world-famous Chris Angel. And I am learning magic tricks to perform uh, on a TV show called Magic with the Stars. And you know it's a high-quality program when one of the stars in question is me. Some of the other stars that will be appearing on Magic with the Stars, Donny Osmond, Tara Lipnicki, Randy Couture, and my good friend Matt Walsh from the Upright Citizens Brigade, among others. I'm just saying, you know, you know, you get it. You get what's happening here, right? They said, do you want to fly to Las Vegas? We'll pay you and we'll put you up and you can play poker and, uh, and, and also, I guess, learn some magic and be on a TV show. And I was like, hell yes, to the first parts of that. And then, okay to the last part of it. So that's what I'm doing. Why not? It's been fun. Chris Angel, lovely guy. And, you know, I'm not going to, look, I'm not going to reveal any of the secrets to these incredible illusions that I will be performing. But suffice to say, minds will be freaked. I'm on the final day of my trip here to Las Vegas. We tape the television program today and then later tonight in front of an audience and I would be lying if I said I wasn't a little bit nervous there's some technical things that I have to get right to make the illusions work because they are uh, magic and all and I definitely have not mastered them you know you learn a trick one day you perform it in front of an audience the next you're not going to master it so I'm just kind of hoping for the best here I'll, I'll do some practicing today and and uh and hopefully it'll all come off without a hitch. And in fact, hitch is a magic term. I mean, it's also, I think, a rope term, but it's used in magic. And yeah, we spent the whole day yesterday, me and Matt Walsh, learning magic tricks. Today we're going to be competing against each other. The big finale, the grand finale of the whole program is uh, I'm going to make a motorcycle appear on stage. You know, a, a motorcycle just appear out of nowhere using only my magical abilities and a team of assistants. So that and a motorcycle. So that's the big finale. And, you know, the tough part of this is, you know, it's, it, you know, magic and comedy are very similar in a lot of ways. I've probably mentioned this before, but, you know, it's all about the art of misdirection. Comedy and, and magic both sort of do the same thing. And uh, so it's sort of fun to marry the two. But, you know, when you do, a, when you do comedy, 
you spend, you might spend, you know, a hundred shows to get a joke exactly right. And I'm sure the same thing is true with magic. You might spend a hundred shows getting a trick exactly right. And then, so how are you supposed to like combine comedy and magic having never performed the magic part before and expect to get it right in any appreciable way? Frankly, I don't. So I'm just kind of, you know, crossing my fingers and hoping for the best. But in the meantime, I've got a little bit of, uh, got some, some free time to record another episode of Obscure. And just to catch us up to last time, Heathcliff and Linton are now in communication. Catherine has passed out. She's, you know, somewhat dead, but not really. We want her to be dead, but she's not, you know. And then uh, Heathcliff walks out and says he's going to come back tomorrow, you know, to check on his beloved, although that's a very loaded word when it comes to their relationship. And uh, he said, whether Linton's there or not, he's coming back tomorrow. So if fisticuffs need to happen, fisticuffs are going to happen. But but come hell or high water, he's going to sit down with Catherine and probably drive her into the grave. Because every time they get together, what happens? Just, you know, more rank destruction. Personal, psychological destruction. On both of them. You know, they're both doing it to each other. It's just that Catherine's constitution is not quite up to snuff. Well, Heathcliff seems to feed on the dark energy that he produces. So let's pick it up. Chapter 16, Wuthering Heights. And I guess I'm still... I'm still doing Nellie's dumb voice because it's just that she seems to be the narrator of the entire book. About 12 o'clock that night was born the Catherine you saw at Wuthering Heights, a puny seven-months child, and two hours after the mother died, having never recovered sufficient consciousness to miss Heathcliff or know Edgar. The latter's distraction at his bereavement is a subject too painful to be dwelt on, its after-effects showed how deep the sorrow sank. Wait, so wait, I guess I'm confused. Who's the mother? Who's the mother? Oh, come on. About 12 o'clock that night was born the Catherine you saw at Wuthering Heights, right? A puny seven-months child, meaning, I guess, uh, seven, it, was, it was a preemie, and two hours after the mother died, having never recovered sufficient consciousness to miss Heathcliff, or no Edgar. All right. The latter's distraction at his bereavement is a subject too painful to be dwelt on. Its after effects showed how deep the sorrow sunk. A great addition in my eyes was his being left without an heir. I bemoaned that as I gazed on the feeble orphan, and I mentally abused old Linton for what was only natural partiality, the securing his estate to his own daughter instead of his son's. Okay, so wait. I mentally abused old Linton for securing his estate to his own daughter instead of his son's. So it's the, it's the older Linton's grandchild 
But wouldn't that imply that it was Catherine's child? How is that? An unwelcomed infant it was, poor thing. It might have wailed out of life, and nobody cared a morsel during those first hours of existence. We redeemed the neglect afterwards, but its beginning was as friendless as its end is likely to be. Next morning, bright and cheerful out of doors, stole softened into the blinds of the silent room and suffused the couch and its occupant with a mellow, tender glow. Edgar Linton had his head laid on the pillow and his eyes shut. His young and fair features were almost as deathlike as those of the form beside him, and almost as fixed. But his was the hush of exhausted anguish, and hers of perfect peace. Her brow smooth, her lids closed, her lips wearing the expression of a smile. No angel in heaven could be more beautiful than she appeared. And I partook of the infinite calm in which she lay. My mind was never in a holier frame than while I gazed on that untroubled image of divine rest. I instinctively echoed the words she had uttered a few hours before, incomparably beyond and above us all, whether still on earth or now in heaven, her spirit is at home with God. Okay, so Catherine is dead, right? So a puny seven months child in two hours after the mother died. So wait, Catherine Sr. was pregnant this whole time? The hell is happening? What the hell is happening here? What do you mean, Catherine? It's Cat. Wait, what? A puny seven months child, and two hours after the mother died, having never recovered sufficient consciousness to miss Heathcliff or no Edgar. I don't understand. I'm gonna, you know what? I'm gonna have to go on the research machine just to, uh, just to, to understand. Uh, uh, what the hell, Catherine? Junior, uh, who is the mother? Hold on a second. I've got somebody at the door. Michael. Hi. Janae, makeup artist. Hi, Janae. Come on in. You? I'm good. She's on her way up with her, um, with your, oh, jeez, that's my phone. Sorry. Oh, no. My okay. Sorry about that interruption. Uh, that, I had to get, they, uh, I had to get my makeup on to, to go do magic. And, uh, and then they brought my wardrobe my first uh, outfit and yesterday they gave me a uh, you can probably even hear it now a salmon t-shirt to try on you know for this motorcycle stunt and I have a leather jacket that goes over it because you know motorcycles and uh, I thought oh a salmon t-shirt I don't know but who cares what the hell and then they brought it back to today and now suddenly the salmon t-shirt has zippers sewn all over it so like it's a it's a punk rock salmon t-shirt because you know this is Chris Angel, so suddenly I'm punk rock salmon motorcycle fay illusionist. That's what it sounds like. That's what the zippers sound like. But anyway, I was doing research when I got rudely interrupted. So Wuthering Heights, Catherine Jr. Mother, well, who, who's that? How did we get this far into the book? without me understanding that Catherine has been pregnant this whole time. When, at what point did they say she is with child? What did I miss? How am I so stupid? And, and has nobody 
like nobody that like the doctor never mentioned you know she's dying and we're concerned about the baby like nobody has said anything about anything and then suddenly she gives birth and dies i don't understand this at all what am i just dumb like i feel like i need to do more research do they ever say that Catherine linton is pregnant Edgar nurses Catherine for the next two months. During this time, it's revealed that Catherine is pregnant. Who did I? When did I? And she, this happened in chapter 13. What? How did I miss this? Or did I just forget? I mean, am I, am I that dumb? Am I that forgetful? For two, now I'm back to chapter 13. Uh, Linton lavished. The master told me to pour a thing, and now you shall hear I've been received in my new home. Uh, Catherine has been, she's very ill, right? This is, this is, uh, Isabel writing, um, the, uh, uh, this is Edgar's legal nephew, to, uh, then what's his face, you know, the, the he starts yelling, because he's always yelling, and then, uh, Master Heathcliff's here went in, uh, couldn't you said so, it on, so, you know, that's Joseph, and he's doing his thing, and then, uh, he told me of Catherine's illness and accused my brother of causing it, promising that chapter 13 is the letter from Isabella. The hell? Our labors were scarcely over when I heard Earnshaw's tread in the passage. Okay, so I saw the word labor and I thought maybe. There's room for both you and your pride. I sort of think you has. Did Joseph's? I mean, what the hell? I mean, I really feel like the worst literary mansplainer in the world at this juncture because I didn't know the most obvious thing. God damn it. So anyway, I guess Catherine had a kid and died the same night. And well, why does she say in the beginning? Okay, so Catherine, you saw Wuthering Heights was born, right? A puny seven-month child. Two hours after, the mother died, right? Having never recovered sufficient consciousness to miss Heathcliff or know Edgar. But she did know Edgar. What does that mean? She didn't know. She, she couldn't admit. She couldn't know Edgar, is it because I'm in Las Vegas and don't have much sleep under my belt right now? Or am I just this stupid that I'm not understanding the book all of a sudden? When the book was perfectly explicable to me before this, and now no longer explicable, some might say inexplicable. So do I just press on? I suppose you're probably annoyed at me. All right. So Catherine's just died incomparably beyond and, ha and above us all, whether still on earth or now in heaven, her spirit's at home with God. Fine, whatever. Okay. I don't know if it be a peculiarity in me, but I am sel seldom otherwise than happy while watching in the chamber of death, should no frenzied or despairing mourner share the duty with me. I see a repose that neither earth nor hell can break, and I feel an assurance of the endless and shadowless hereafter, the eternity they have entered, where life is boundless in its duration, and love in its sympathy, and joy in its fullness. I noticed on that occasion how much selfishness there is even in a love like Mr. Linton's when he so regretted Catherine's blessed release. So again, you know, this is, it, it, it is a little macabre the way that these characters speak of death as... Sorry, I'm just readjusting things so that you don't hear my zippers, my shirt zippers. So Catherine has talked about this, and Heathcliff has kind of agreed with her, and now Ellen's saying the same thing, that basically death 
is preferable to life. There is a uh, macabre, a grim fantasy, a longing for death that seems to run through these characters. And I guess it's a good thing because Emily Bronte certainly wasn't long for the world, was she? So maybe she was pining for her own sweet release even as she wrote these words. I don't know. But it is, it, I do find that a little bit peculiar. You could, you could give that to one character and say, well, you know, this character is longing for death and thinks death's going to be just A-OK and peachy. And then the other characters would be like, oh, don't say that. That's a lousy thing to say. I'm staring at the Eiffel Tower as I'm speaking to you right now. You know, the phony Eiffel Tower that Sheldon Adelson built. Speaking of, you know, dead. Speaking of dead, Sheldon Adelson, I hope his death is more productive than his life because he sucked here on Earth. But the, these people, you know, they're longing for death, all of them. And, and I'm going to go off on another tangent. You know, I've been doing my own research into life after death, or at least the experience of people who have died and come back or have come close to death and been revived, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, it's true through all cultures, through all times, that people have these NDE, near-death experiences, that basically mimic what Emily Bronte is writing. I feel an assurance of the endless and shadowless hereafter, the eternity they have entered where love is boundless in its duration, in love, in its sympathy, and joy in its fullness. This is a common experience that people have where they feel like they've, you know, either entered the light or met, um, you know, a dead relative who brought them to the light or, but, but this, this sense of oneness and, and, and eternal love and all of that, very, very common. And then, you know, we naturally, we attribute that to quote unquote God, but uh, that seems a little simplistic, I think, or rather, when we talk about God, we talk about God in a very simplistic way. There's a, it's a kind of, God is a kind of shorthand for the ineffable, but God in its richer sense, in its deeper sense, is also inexplicable. That's a word I'm going to be using uh, a lot because I'm now in the land of magic, and magic is also inexplicable, except that I can tell you very quickly how to do all these tricks. To be sure, one might have doubted, after the wayward and impatient existence she had led, whether she merited a haven of peace at last. One might doubt in seasons of cold reflection, but not then in the presence of her corpse. It asserted its own tranquility, which seemed a pledge of equal quiet to its former inhabitant." Do you believe such people are happy in the other world, sir? Right, she's talking to Lockwood now. Every now and again, she just, she just, you know, she reminds us that she's talking to Lockwood. But then what's weird is that Lockwood now is saying, because he, he said this earlier, that he's abridging what Nellie said, and yet he's speaking verbatim, so much so that he repeated the question to himself and referred to himself as himself through the voice of Nellie. The whole thing's very convoluted. I'd, do, are you, do, you, do you agree with this? And then she says, I'd, be, I'd give a great deal to know. Well we'll, well, we'll get his answer to that in a moment as I take a break to just uh, unzip and zip myself in, in, in all the different ways that I can here on Obscura.
Back in obscure, pondering life's deepest mysteries as Catherine has slipped the bounds of this, you know, brutal and short existence and gone to her heavenly peace, Mrs. Dean has asked our uh, host. I'm not going to call him our narrator. He's our host, our book host, Lockwood, his opinion on the matter. And then Lockwood says, I declined answering Mrs. Dean's question, which struck me as something heterodox. Well, okay. So, I mean, what, what, then why do we even have this interjection? Why do we even have Mrs. Dean ans- ask the question if Lockwood is just going to sidestep and then we get back to Mrs. Dean? She proceeded. Retracing the course of Catherine Linton, I fear we have no right to think she is, but we'll leave her with her maker. Meaning, uh, no life to think whether she has merited a haven of peace? Well, that doesn't seem nice. I'm I'm just going to choose to believe that uh, she thinks she is at peace. Okay. The master looked to sleep, and I ventured soon after sunrise to quit the room and steal out to the pure, refreshing air. The servants thought me gone to shake off the drowsiness of my protracted watch. In reality, my chief motive was seeing Mr. Heathcliff. If he had remained among the larches all night, he would have heard nothing of the stir at the Grange, unless, perhaps, he might catch the gallop of the messenger going to Gimmerton. If he had come nearer, he would probably be aware from the lights flitting to and fro, and the opening and shutting of the outer doors, that all was not right within. I wished, yet feared, to find him. So wait a second. Hold on a second. To, wait, hold on. It just occurs to me. So Catherine Jr. is born, right? But when we meet Catherine Jr., she's living with Heathcliff. Why is that? I guess we'll get there, but why isn't she living with Edgar? Does Edgar die too? I wished, yet feared, to find him. I felt the terrible news must be told, and I longed to get it over with. But how to do it, I did not know. He was there, at least a few yards further in the park. Lent against an old ash tree, his hat off, and his hair soaked with the dew that had gathered on the budded branches, and fell pattering round him. He'd been standing a long time in that position, for I saw a pair of ousels passing and repassing scarcely three feet from him, busy in building their nest, and regarding his proximity no more than that of a piece of timber. They flew off at my approach, and he raised his eyes and spoke. She's dead, he said. I've not waited for you to learn that. Put your handkerchief away. Don't snivel before me. Damn you all, she wants none of your tears. I was weeping as much for him as her. We do sometimes pity creatures that have none of the feeling either for themselves or others. And when I first looked into his face, I perceived that he had got intelligence of the catastrophe and a foolish notion struck me that his heart was quelled, and he prayed, because his lips moved and his gaze was bent on the ground. Yes, she's dead, I answered, checking my sobs and drying my cheeks. Gone to heaven, I hope, where we may, every one join her, if we take due warning and leave our evil ways to follow good. She did take due warning then, asked Heathcliff, attempting a sneer. Did she die like a saint? Come, give me a true history of the event. How did he endeavor to pronounce the name, but could not manage it, and compressing his mouth, 
he held a silent combat with his inward agony, defying, meanwhile, my sympathy with an unflinching, ferocious stare. How did she die? He resumed at last, fain, notwithstanding his hardihood, to have a support behind him, for after the struggle, he trembled in spite of himself to his very finger ends. Poor wretch, I thought. You have a heart and nerves the same as your brother men. Why would you be anxious to conceal them? Your pride cannot blind God. Yet tempt him to wring them till he forces a cry of humiliation. Quietly as a lamb, I answered aloud. She drew a sigh and stretched herself like a child reviving and sinking again to sleep. And five minutes after, I felt one little pulse at her heart and nothing more. So I don't understand. Why is there no mention of a baby here? Why is nobody talking about the fact that a baby was born? What is happening in this book? At about 12 o'clock that night was born the Catherine you saw at Wuthering Heights. Two hours after, the mother died. So why is nobody saying that there was a baby born? And how did she die like a little lamb having just given birth? What the hell is going on here? Why is nobody mentioning that the fucking baby was born? This is just becoming nonsensical to me. She's, nobody knows she's pregnant. Apparently, apparently everybody knows but me. Everybody knows she's pregnant but me, right? She's pregnant. She's dying. She's recovering. Nobody ever asks about the pregnancy. Nobody ever says, hey, you know, you're not eating. You're not taking care of yourself. You got to think about the little life within you. You got to, you know, you got to do a little something to take care of yourself. And then she dies and nobody ever mentions it. I, I mean, I just, I'm missing something here. Why doesn't anybody talk about the fact that she's pregnant? Why doesn't anybody talk about the fact that she refuses to eat, but she's pregnant? Nobody ever says, you got to think of the baby. Not even Kenneth says anything about the baby. Kenneth just says, oh, she going to die, right? And then there's a baby all of a sudden. I, I really don't understand this. So she, so she says, uh, five minutes after I felt one little pulse at her heart and nothing more. And did she ever mention me? He asked, hesitating, as if he dreaded the answer to his question would introduce details that he could not bear to hear. Her senses never returned. She recognized nobody from the time you left her, I said. She lies with a sweet smile on her face, and her latest ideas wandered back to pleasant early days. Her life closed in a gentle dream. May she wake as kindly in the other world. May she wake in torment, (laughs) he cried with frightful vehemence, stamping his foot and groaning in a sudden paroxysm of ungovernable passion. Why, she's a liar to the end. Where is she? Not there, not in heaven, not perished. Where? Oh, you said you cared nothing for my sufferings, and I pray one prayer. I repeat it till my tongue stiffens. Catherine Earnshaw, may you not rest as long as I am living. You said I killed you. Haunt me then. The murdered do haunt their murderers. I believe. I know that ghosts have wandered on earth. Be with me always. Take any form. Drive me mad. Only do not leave me in this abyss where I cannot find you. Oh God, it is unutterable. I cannot live without my life. I cannot live without my soul. Okay, so, um, I feel like 
this is the first time that uh, Heathcliff has mentioned or or has equated. Thank you so much. Has equated his feelings for Catherine. Uh, a uh, lady just brought me a coffee, you know, because when you're doing TV shows, people just bring you shit. Uh, has equated in 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 the same terms his love for Catherine that Catherine has felt for him. She he is more myself than me, uh, and now he is basically saying the same thing. I cannot live without my life. I cannot live without my soul. Great. There's the great equalizer, as far as I'm concerned. So their codependency is complete. And I am delighted. Even so, still no word about a baby. <sighs> so he's tormented and he's saying, he's saying, uh, haunt me. Damn you. Don't, don't go. You don't, you, you don't get to go to heaven, lady. You got to stay here and haunt me because you said I murdered you. So haunt me, drive me crazy uh, until we can be together again. And in fact, that's exactly what she's going to do. That's precisely the intention of Catherine. I cannot live without my soul. He dashed his head against the knotted trunk and lifting up his eyes, howled, not like a man, but like a savage beast getting goaded to death with knives and spears. And again, there's that imagery of Heathcliff as wolf or dog. The ferocious Heathcliff, the skulking Heathcliff, almost werewolvian. I observed several splashes of blood about the bark of the tree, and his hand and forehead were both stained. Probably the scene I witnessed was a repetition of others acted during the night. It hardly moved my compassion, it appalled me. Still, I felt reluctant to quit him so. But the moment he recollected himself enough to notice me watching, he thundered a command for me to go, and I obeyed. He was beyond my skill to quiet or console. So we'll stop there. Catherine, at long last, happily is dead. It only took half the book, you know. took forever to kill her off. And, uh, you know, I don't feel like we gained any new information in the last hundred pages of her life. I guess we just needed time for that baby to to bake in the oven this baby that nobody's even talking about on the moment of her birth yeah we understand the mom's dead and how sad boohoo but there's a new life here a preemie that's apparently suffering puny seven months two months early and uh nobody's even mentioned it nobody's even mentioned like what they did with the baby what do you do with a preemie back then you just stick it in a bassinet and hope for the best what's happening in this book who are these people <sighs> All right, I have to go be magical. Um, yeah, I guess we'll pick it up again next time. Maybe from Roma, the city of lights. Yeah, we'll pick it up on another Abracadabra episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and the great Robin Lynn. Our theme song is by Craig Wedgren. We rely on you, the listeners, for support. So please, go to patreon.com slash Black. Sign up. There's all kinds of fun stuff. There's goodies. You could join the book club where we get together. We talk about the book. 
that we're reading. Uh, and it's just a fun community. So, you know, head on over to patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black, and I will see you next time.